Well, good morning. This is the third Sunday of Lent. You know, part of what the church intends for this season of Lent is a time of uh, confession. Uh, But confession can be really hard for us. One, because we have to admit something is wrong, something's not right. And uh, I don't know about you, but I don't like doing that. I don't like admitting things are wrong. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Um, I remember having it a number of years ago in a church service where we were praying and we were given um, kind of a, a moment for silent confession. And the worship leader, I'm sure, had no in, intention of this, but I'm sure in their script or whatever, their liturgy that they were following, it said, pause for time of reflection. Uh, or confession, and it was like, like this. It was like this really quick pause, and I, I, I thought, wow, they must not have had much to confess. I'm still going. I'm gonna, I'm gonna need a little bit here, um, but they were moving on. Um, whenever they get to that time, I, I think you know, we probably don't have adequate time for all of us to sit there and truly confess all the stuff happening in our lives. The other reason why confession can be uncomfortable is because confession is meant to lead to something. It's meant to lead to repentance or uh, turning around. That's kind of the, the biblical word for repentance is, a, is a kind of an about face, turning and, and re, uh, returning to Jesus, returning to our first love and walking in a different direction. Well, this morning I want to look at two dimensions of the good news story of Jesus and the invitation to enter into the story and how that uh, impacts our world. Our collection of scriptures that we've read this morning or or referenced, uh, Psalm uh, 63, uh, Luke 13, and also um, the scripture reference that uh, Katie was referencing Uh, this morning is out of Isaiah 55. These three passages kind of give us uh, an opportunity to look at these two dimensions of how we respond to the good news of Jesus. And so as we look at that this morning, would you pray with me? Jesus, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts together be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me start with some questions. What are some good things, some benefits to having rules or boundaries? All right, rules can help keep you safe. I think especially traffic laws and those kinds of things are there to give structure to keep us safe. Say that one again. To protect the weak. Okay. Laws help protect especially the vulnerable. That's what they're intended to do. GPS. GPS. (laughs) The the boundaries, okay? Yeah. Yeah, it helps you know when you're off track. To To prevent chaos. 
holding people accountable. Okay. Uh, what are some negatives or drawbacks to maybe especially excessive rules or boundaries? Confusing. Confusing. All right, stifles creativity, and I, I, Dave has a second on that one. All right. Restrictive. Now let me flip this a little bit. What are some good things about having freedom to do as you choose? All right, you don't have to think about did I follow this rule or did I follow that rule? All right, we can, flip side of that, we can be more creative, express ourselves. All right, maybe it's more positive in that freedom. Develop critical thinking skills. What are some drawbacks, maybe some negative sides to um, this kind of freedom to do as we choose? You can get hurt. Criticism. You can hurt others. Oh, okay, so we think we know best, but maybe we find out in expressing our freedom and others expressing their freedom that there's uh, a conflict there, or maybe we haven't figured out what's entirely best. All right, so we can wander without an objective. So maybe we're not really going somewhere or, or, or to a, a destination. Yeah, so think about, and this is just for you to kind of put in your mind and think about this question, what might it look like to have all boundaries and no freedom? Or what would it look like to have all freedom and no boundaries? Just think about those questions. I just want to briefly touch on each of our scriptures this morning. The first one out of Isaiah 55, 1 through 9. This, this text is very invitational. It is an inviting to, to come and to find this water. Come and, and um, eat, even if you don't have resources, even if you don't have funds, to come and to find this new life. It says, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Uh, later in verse 5, it says, you shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that you do not know shall run to you, because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So this is um, a prophecy uh, from the prophet Isaiah uh, spoken to, to Israel. And then in verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Uh, their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. 
And so what we see in this passage um, spoken by Isaiah is a little bit of these two sides. It is an invitation to all who are thirsty, whether they have the resources or not. Um, Even as uh, Isaiah sees a time where um, folks from outside of the nation of Israel are going to be welcomed in, are going to be blessed by uh, this group of folks, there is an invitation On the flip side of that, there is also an expectation. An expectation of um, the wicked forsaking their ways, the unrighteous, their, their thoughts, and returning, turning around. This idea of repentance and coming back to the Lord. Invitation, but also an expectation. Psalm 63 uh, that, that uh, Chet read for us. I seek you. He was emphasizing some of those words. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. It's, it's the, the psalmist longing to be with God, longing to be connected. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. This passionate longing and seeking after the Lord. It's about a, a journey or seeking after God. So it is very invitational to come, but also to follow Jesus. And then our story from uh, Luke chapter 13. Jesus is being asked to comment on some recent events in ancient Palestine. Outside of uh, the gospel account, we don't have other information on these stories. Uh, There's no uh, other writings that help give us a better idea of uh, the Galileans who were uh, killed by Pilate and exactly what it meant for their blood to be mixed with the sacrifices. Although, uh, you know, if you think back to the Jewish purity laws, um, I can imagine that the mixing of blood, human blood and sacrificial blood, is not a kosher idea. Um, So something has happened here that is in violation of the purity laws or the sacrificial laws. Something's happened there. We also aren't given more information about what happens at Siloam with this tower falling on these folks. We don't have bigger details, but This audience gathers around Jesus and wants his comment on what has happened there. And in particular, especially in, in the ancient world, if something bad happens, it is assumed that it is God's judgment on these people. And that's not just a Jewish idea. That was a a Greek and pagan idea as well, that if something bad happened to somebody, they, they fell victim to a tragedy, it was God's judgment on that person. There was some kind of sin, secret or otherwise, that was being exercised, judgment was being exercised on them. A little bit different from in our world today, when something bad happens, uh, modern people tend to question the existence or the goodness or the omnipotence of God. But in the ancient world, they wanted to know what did they do wrong that this happened to them. The audience wants Jesus to comment on the guilt of those who have suffered. 
But it's interesting, Jesus actually keeps refocusing and reframing his audience back on questions of their own repentance. He's not really interested in commenting about the guilt or innocence of those that have have suffered, but he wants to turn that back and go, what about your own life? What about your own repentance? If you don't turn, if you don't change, if you don't start to, to follow back in the way, you're going to end up suffering as well. He kind of keeps reframing their question. Jesus isn't really commenting here on why tragedy happens or where God's in all of this or who is guilty and suffering from God's judgment. Jesus is saying, control what you can control and asking, are you in right relationship? What about your own, uh, the the Greek word metanoia, metamorphosis, the changing, being reformed and reshaped into the image of Christ? Where are you at? And then Jesus tells a parable of a fig tree. It's a very short little parable. Fig tree has been planted and growing for three years, but no fruit has shown up on this tree. You know, it can take a few years to see fruit begin to grow on a tree. They need some some time to send those roots down. But by now, the gardener and the owner should see something happening. It's been there long enough that fruit should be appearing. There's a, a farmer named Mark Shepard who has orchards filled with all kinds of trees kind of interspersed uh, through his orchard. And he tries to farm in a very natural way that he works with creation rather than against creation. And he has kind of an innovative approach to his orchard, and he calls it the STUN method. STUN is an acronym for sheer, total, utter neglect. What Mark Shepard wants in his orchard is trees that want to thrive in the climate they are planted in, that want to thrive in the soil that they uh, are planted in, that thrive despite the, the pest pressure that is around them. He wants them to be able to grow on their own. And so after an initial planting and an initial fertilizing, he lets them go. And if they are going to be part of his farm long term, they will grow. They will thrive. And if not, he cuts them down and plants something else, tries something different. He's not going to waste energy and resources on a tree that doesn't want to grow there. After three years, something should be happening with this fig tree in the parable, but there's no fruit. And so the owner wants to cut it down. The farmer asks for another year to to fertilize and and cultivate the tree and see if it will bear fruit. I find it very interesting and frustrating that we don't have the end of the story. I want to know how it turns out with the tree. Does it produce fruit? Does Does the manure that the farmer wants to put on the tree does it work does it take effect does that tree blossom the next year 
Or do they have to come in and cut it down? Planting something else, maybe. The point of the parable connected to the stories of repentance that precede the parable is that Jesus is asking whether the audience has repented to turn around and to to walk in a different direction, to walk back towards the Lord. And are they bearing fruit? Think of Paul's uh, fruit of the Spirit. Is that fruit in keeping with repentance, turning around, walking back? This morning I want to offer you a couple thoughts, ideas, and I'm open to pushback now following the service. That's fine. Um, this is some, some ideas, some thoughts that have been um, kind of working their way through uh, my reading and through my thinking here. There's two dimensions of our response to the good news of Jesus. Invitation, that all are welcome the thirsty, those that can afford the wine and the milk and those who can't, those suffering tragedy and those on the outside questioning the tragedy. The good news of the gospel is that we are all invited. Everyone is invited. And we shouldn't stick anything in the way of everyone being invited to the good news of Jesus. Everyone. The second dimension of that is transformation. All are invited to seek and journey towards Christ. We are all invited to return, to repent, to be changed, to be nourished, to be discipled in the way of Jesus and to bear the fruit of repentance, of seeking after Christ. There's two ends of a spectrum that congregations or groups of Christians have tended to lean towards. The first one is a, what we call a bounded set. This bounded set means that there are clear lines drawn around who is in and who is out. Very strict uh, line drawing. In a positive way, think of uh, an organized soccer club. People that have the jerseys, they have their names on the back, uh, they have their positions. This is a bounded set. It is a team of people, and there are people that are on the team, and there are people that are not on the team. And there are expectations of people that are on the team, and, and there's you know contracts drawn up and, and all dues paid, jerseys on their backs, they have assigned positions. This is a, a bounded set. This is a bounded group. As a church, sometimes these groups have often focused on drawing certain lines or boundaries while ignoring other biblical mandates. I was thinking about you know, our own Church of the Brethren history. Uh, we have, there was a time where there was a, a clear boundary of who is in and who is out. And there were certain things associated with that. You dressed a certain way. You wore a certain prayer covering. Not too much lace because we don't want to be too worldly. And you wore a certain kind of jacket without the collar because the collar would be worldly. And we shaved our faces a certain way without the mustache because we didn't want to say certain things. Um, And there was a clear marking of who was in 
and who was out. Now, there's some benefits to that. There's clearer, clearly articulated expectations in the best case scenarios. But you are in or you are out. Not especially invitational. I think maybe um, with the, think the Amish today. There's not a lot of like uh, non-Amish people joining the community. Right? You're born into it. There's, you meet the expectations uh, of the church or you don't. Um, but you, you know, it's not a great invitational group. Boundaries do have their place. These groups kind of center on transformation, becoming more like Christ is a part of the Christian journey, but also it's about becoming more like Christ, not just following the group, right? It's about, it's supposed to be about becoming more like Jesus. Sometimes, though, focusing too much on drawing the lines of in and out leads towards judgmentalism. We're doing it right. You're doing it wrong. We're wearing the right clothes. You're not. We're doing X, Y, and Z. You're not. And we're better than everyone else. We've figured it out. We become like the audience asking if the tragic events are God's judgment on some secret sin of another and we whisper, conjecturing what that secret sin might be and now being judged for. Jesus asks, have you repented and turned from your own failings? So that's one side, this bounded set. The other side is something called a fuzzy set which means there's no clear lines. In fact, lines and boundaries are frowned upon, whereas the bounded set groups focus on defining who is in and who is out. On the other side of that spectrum, fuzzy set groups are opposed to drawing any kind of distinguishing lines. If you think one side is the the bounded set, that close defined is the soccer club with who's in and who's out, The other side of that is like going to the park. Everyone is invited to the park. You just go to the park. You do whatever you want at the park. We can can get together and play soccer. You can play frisbee. You can get together for a picnic. You can do other assorted activities at the park. But but that's a a, a fuzzy set. It's just people that are at the park. No expectations that we're going to interact. No expectations of growth or movement in one direction. We're just at the park which is fine. The bounded set groups may often place high value on discipleship, but that often is about conforming to the group's definition rather than the person of Jesus. On the flip side of that, the fuzzy sets don't really produce disciples because if there aren't definitions, expectations of transformation, one can't really grow as a disciple. If we're just here and there's no expectation of movement, there's no expectation of discipleship, there's no expectation of being transformed, we just welcome people in as they are with no movement towards a direction. Not sure if that really produces disciples. 
Fuzzy sets can be a mile wide but an inch deep with no real depth. And something, kind of the, the one then that steps off of that spectrum is something called a centered set. This is a great book that you can pick up. I'm still working my way through it. It's called Centered Set Church by Mark Baker. And the subtitle is Discipleship and Community Without Judgmentalism. This is offering a, a, a different way of approaching the church. In a centered set, it steps off of the, that spectrum and focuses on a center and a movement towards a center. It requires defining what, or in our case, who is at the center. Very Sunday school answer, who's at the center? Jesus. All right. Now, we, we can define, you know, who we think Jesus is, and, and, and there's, there's that helpful. But Jesus is at the center, and this is about movement towards the center, movement towards who Jesus is as revealed in Scripture. Think of it as a pickup game of soccer at the park. Anyone is invited. If there are too many, we can have subs or we can start a whole other game of soccer. But we agree that we're there to play soccer. Right? We're at the park, anyone invited, everyone is invited, but we're here to play soccer. If you pick up the ball in the middle of the game and start running around, that's not soccer. <laughs> we agreed at the start we're going to play soccer. And this is really about our, our, our relationship with Jesus. We agree in our, in our baptism, in, in our vows that we make to one another, that we're agreeing to follow Jesus together. We're agreeing that there is a center and that you and I are called to be transformed into the image of Christ. To help one another as we grow, you know, we hear this at Spring Creek, as we grow, share, and serve connected by Jesus, we're saying there is a center. We are expected to be growing and learning and being discipled into the way of Jesus. There is a center. There is some level of defining what this group is about. There is something at the center that pulls us together and influences our actions. It seems to me that this is what our collection of scriptures and the biblical witness as a whole is pointed towards. That everyone is invited, encouraged, and welcomed. And there is a clear center in Jesus that we are invited to draw closer to and become more like the image of Christ. We are invited to repentance, to returning, and transformation. So let me ask for some feedback here. How does that feel to you? What do you like or dislike about those analogies? You gotta have some time to process. That's all right, you can email me later in the week. All right, we're still mulling it over, that's good. All right, so yeah, so it's about an, an objective that we're moving towards a, a goal. A to, we're moving towards a person, right? There is a direction that we're going. We're not just 
wandering aimlessly, right? Now, something for us to think about. First question I, I thought of in, in just processing this is which one is Spring Creek? And I don't know that it's which one. I think it's in what ways might we be bounded? In what ways might we be fuzzy? In what ways might we be centered, moving towards Jesus? I don't think we're all of one or the other. I think we're, there's parts of us that draw clear lines of distinguishing between who's in and who's out. Uh, there's times that we're fuzzy and nondescript on, on what's happening or on our life together. And I hope in the, our best moments we are centered on Jesus and inviting and encouraging and moving together towards Jesus at the center. One last analogy that fits in with our scriptures. And it's a farming analogy. It's a, that's where I go. I figure it's where Jesus went to, so I don't feel so bad. For years, shepherds in Australia tried using fences to keep in all of their sheep. They stuck all these fences up and they had to move these fences with, with the sheep as they went through all of the places they, that they were at, trying, the shepherd trying to move them. But Australia can be pretty arid, not unlike Palestine. And they were finding difficult, it difficult to keep moving these portable fences all over the place. And so what shepherds in Australia started to recognize is that if they focused on building wells and building water sources, their sheep never wandered too far from the wells. They were always drawn back to where they received nourishment. And so they didn't have to worry about building these fences all around. They just built wells. And these animals just kept finding their way back, finding their way back to the center. This is where we draw nourishment from. Oh God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come and find Jesus is at the center, the living water. And bear the fruit that comes with turning around, what the Bible calls repentance, and moving towards the center of Jesus and being transformed little by little by the renewing of our minds, our actions, our way of being into the image of Christ. One group says it this way, we are open and mutually transforming, meaning that we are open to all and expect that together we are growing into the people Jesus longs for us to be, people that bear fruit and aren't just taking up space. 
May we be something of that, that well, focused on Jesus, inviting everyone to come and find the living water. Come and find their nourishment in Jesus Christ. Come and journey together towards that center. This is who we're called to be, church. I'm going to invite our response as we turn in our blue hymnals uh, to number 356. It's Breathe on Me, Breath of God. <laughs>